Thank you for tuning in to Okawa Book Club Podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Hannah. And I'm John. Today we will dive into Chapter 4 of The Challenge of Enlightenment by Ryuho Okawa. What is egolessness? Just like the previous episode we did on Chapter 2, Freeing Yourself from Ignorance, this chapter has such profound content, and we would like to read out the most important parts. Yes. So there are six sections in this chapter. One, a scholar's misinterpretation of the idea of egolessness. Two, the individuality of the human soul. Three, the parable of the poisoned arrow. Four, how to become truly egoless. And five, egoless as the theory of salvation. So now let's read from section one. Section one, a scholar's misinterpretation of the idea of egolessness. In this chapter, I will discuss the problem of egolessness and ego. First, let me tell you why I feel the need to offer a detailed explanation of this. The other day, I was reading a book written by a well-known Japanese Buddhist scholar, Professor Yu of the University of Tokyo, who was highly influential in academic circles in his lifetime. He took Japan's religious world by storm by establishing an original theory in which he stated that the theory of causality was the central teaching of Buddhism. While I was reading the professor's book, his spirit came to see me. To my surprise, he came not from heaven, but from hell. He tried to talk to me, so I spent the night talking to him. He was a scholar who even compiled his research into a complete set of Buddhist teachings. Therefore, he knew much more about the many academic interpretations of Buddhist theories than I did. He had studied all the original Buddhist sutras, as well as all the translations and commentaries on the teachings, and he had established his own unique theory, But since his death, he has been in hell and does not know how to get out of there. It is pitiful to have studied Buddhism and researched Buddhist teachings only to end up in hell. He said to me, I don't know why I'm in a place like this, although I study Buddhism so diligently. I thought it was natural that he was unable to understand. Because he accomplished such great work and was well-versed in Buddhism, he must have thought he knew everything there was to know about it. But as I listened to him, I discovered exactly why he was lost. It was his misinterpretation of the idea of egolessness. Although there might have been other points on which he was mistaken, it seemed to me that the cause of his delusion lay in his misunderstanding of this concept. However, this misunderstanding did not originate from his own thinking. If you study modern Buddhism, you may encounter an interpretation of the teachings that states that because Shakyamuni Buddha preached egolessness, there is essentially no such thing as the self. This interpretation has been widely accepted among Buddhist scholars. Even the monks in Buddhist temples seem to think the same. But if this interpretation were right, it would result in the idea that if you attained enlightenment through spiritual discipline while you were alive, then after death, the self would vanish and you would be able to escape the bondage of reincarnation. Because the self disappears, there would be no subject to reincarnate. In that case, you will become clueless about what would happen to yourself in the afterlife. If misunderstood, the idea of egolessness may lead to this conclusion. When I was talking with the spirit of the famous scholar, he said, because there is essentially no such thing as the self, There cannot be any life after death. So I asked him, But you are talking with me now. Then who are you? He answered, Well, I don't know, because he had also studied Zen Buddhism. He tried to explain 
his present state of being in a complicated Zen way, saying, because there is essentially no self, after death the self cannot exist. This self is deluded and is not the true self. I said to him, regardless of whether the self is deluded, you are yourself. It is you who is lost. He continued to develop his argument based on his own peculiar logic, but that will never save him. There is no denying that there was some mistake in his basic understanding of Buddhism. This is, however, not his problem alone, but a problem that greatly affects all Buddhist circles and the whole religious world. I estimate that about half the scholars of Buddhism and religious studies agree with the ideas of this scholar. Continuing to section two, the individuality of the human soul. It is true that of the three Dharma seals that Shakyamuni Buddha expounded, the second seal is the egolessness of all phenomena. This can also be expressed as all dharmas are without self. Dharma here does not mean teaching or law indicating the right way of living, but rather the whole of creation. It includes all things and all the phenomena that exist in this universe. So the second seal is the idea that all things are essentially non-substantial and that therefore there is no self or ego in anything made of matter. If you take this idea literally, there is a danger of you thinking, because there is no self or ego that is substantial, in the end, everything will disintegrate and disappear into thin air. Although this understanding may be right from the standpoint of the physics of Buddha's light, which asserts that all things are originally made of light, it cannot be considered right from the perspective that all human beings, animals, and plants are undergoing spiritual training in this world. This understanding cannot be considered right because each human soul has its own individual character, which actually exists. The individuality of the soul is a unique manifestation of each individual originating from Buddhist light. This individuality was developed through spiritual discipline undergone in a physical body on earth. Each soul has a long history of individuality, and this individualization itself is what Buddha is happy about. There are many souls that have developed in different ways, but the original nature of each soul is light. Although we are essentially the same as children of Buddha, each of us is expected to develop a unique individuality. We are such an existence that has these two contradictory aspects. I love that part. This is what Buddha is happy about. Yeah. Like, yeah. That just kind of breaks your intellectual mind and make you think, oh, yes, of course, God. <laughs> anyway, let me delve into a more detailed explanation. The fundamental mistake Buddhist scholars make is their misunderstanding of human existence as a temporary composite of five <clears throat> aggregates. The five aggregates are matter, feeling, perception, volition, and consciousness. Matter or form refers to the physical body. Feeling or sensation is the function of these senses. Perception is the forming of an image or an idea. Volition is the function of the will, which puts an idea or image into practice. And consciousness is the function of recognition or understanding. In other words, first there is a physical body, matter. Then you feel something, feeling, and have an image or idea, perception. Next, you have the power of the will to do something to manifest the image or idea, volition. And finally, you see the whole picture of what you're doing or have done, consciousness. A human being is a temporary composite of these five factors. Except for the physical body, the remaining four are mental functions related to the heart and mind. In short, a human being is composed of a physical body and heart and mind. There is such kind of thinking. This leads to the idea 
A human being is temporarily made up of these five different elements, a physical body and the four mental functions that are non-substantial in origin. This sort of being is transient and therefore impermanent. If the wind blows, it will fly away. Or if burned by fire, it will disappear. Learning this theory, many Buddhist scholars seem to have jumped to the conclusion that because a human being is a temporary composite of the five aggregates, he or she will dissolve and disappear into thin air as spirit-like energy after death. Now we'll fast forward to the latter part of the second paragraph on page 117. Although Shakyamuni Buddha taught such a high-level concept, his disciples were unable to grasp the true meaning of his words. Many of his disciples had already concluded, because Buddha said that the self does not essentially exist, it must be true that human beings disappear after death. This misinterpretation on the part of the disciples caused much confusion later on. At its worst, this misunderstanding led to the argument, Buddhism teaches egolessness, so the soul must disappear after death. These days, about half of all Buddhist priests seem to agree with this interpretation. They say, in Buddhism, we deny the soul. Your ego perishes when you die. If asked why they read sutras for the dead during funerals, they respond, we are performing a service to console the bereaved family. There is a high possibility of these priests falling to hell after they die, and quite a number of scholars misunderstand the same way. They have come to think in this way because the spiritual explanation of Buddhist teachings of egolessness was too difficult for them to understand. They conclude that because egolessness means the soul perishes after death, Buddha denied the existence of the soul. However, what results from this misunderstanding is materialism. It denies the existence of life after death. In fact, some of the traditional Indian religions criticize Buddhism as a form of materialism in the guise of a religion. Many European religious scholars also define Buddhism as a materialistic and atheistic philosophy. As you can see, it was not Buddha, but his disciples' lack of understanding of Buddha's teachings that caused Buddhism to become materialistic and atheist during the course of history. Master Okawa, the living Buddha himself, is now making the correction to this misunderstanding and teaching the correct, authentic Buddhism. The purpose of Buddhist teachings is to save our soul by teaching us how to free ourselves from delusion and how to nurture our true self, our Buddha nature or divine nature. Yes, and as you read in section 4, Parable of the Poisoned Arrow, when Shakyamuni Buddha was teaching his disciples, most of the time, his teachings were meant for one specific individual. Unlike the current world, when Master Okawa can preach to tens of thousands of people in one lecture, Buddha used to deliver a unique and specific teaching to each individual. That's why there are more than 84,000 teachings recorded in Buddhism. However, due to the lack of understanding, disciples have the tendency to generalize and standardize the teachings, and sometimes this creates misunderstandings. As explained in this section, in Parable of the Poison Arrow, I wonder why this happens. Like, why do they all, they all fall into the trap, like a, like a trench that they couldn't get out of? Yeah. It's like, uh, did they almost want to be so knowledgeable about the teachings that it kind of stopped their progress, hmm. maybe? I think that's a good point. You know, I think um, it's almost like by thinking of it that way, you can, all you have to do is use like the reasoning part of the mind. Mm. So. Mm you can feel in control because you can reason or justify anything. It doesn't mean it's true, though. <laughs> so you kind of, like, stop yourself at the gates before you even <laughs> get anywhere. That's so true. Very interesting. Yeah, it just seems like, yeah, everyone gets stuck at that same yeah. part. It's interesting. I mean, I guess we all do. All do, but... Oh, sure. Yeah. 
It's interesting. Okay, so let us continue to read section five, how to become truly egoless. I have so far discussed the problems pertaining to the idea of egolessness from a spiritual point of view. Now let me talk about the real reason Shakyamuni Buddha taught egolessness. One of the reasons he emphasized egolessness was to teach that the cause of suffering lies mostly in attachment. Attachment means clinging to something. At the root of attachment lies the ego or self, the thought of I or me, in other words, a self-centered, biased perspective based on what is convenient for you. Most suffering is caused by a self-centered perspective or desire. Of the eight pains experienced in life, the pain of not getting what you want is the most typical of this kind of suffering. Everyone suffers from it. This pain of not getting what you want is rooted in the ego. The word mine derives from the thought I am. If there is no I am, there would be no mine. You may think that person is mine. He is my subordinate. He is my lover. She is my wife. There are my children. They are my parents. This is my house. This is my land. This is my bat. This is my ball. This is my camera. This is my purse. This is my money. This is my bank book. This is my business card. This is my desk. This is my chair. This is my grave. And so on. First, there is a thought of I or me. And this leads to the idea, this is mine. Your sense of possession gives birth to attachment. To abandon such attachment, you have to let go of the thought, this is mine. What is your true being? Your true being is a manifestation of light that came into being upon the wish of the creator of the universe, the primordial Buddha. Do not forget that. When you remember the origin of your existence, you can become one with Buddha. Going back to the teaching of egolessness, it should be re-examined from two angles. The idea of egolessness was not meant to imply that there is no such thing as the physical self. One of the essences of egolessness requires you to become one with Buddha. Unless you are selfless, you cannot become one with Buddha. If you are too concerned about yourself, Buddha's light won't come shining into you. The Buddhist approach to becoming one with Buddha is through self-reflection and meditation, whereas the Christian approach is through prayer to God. You can also become one with the divine through praying wholeheartedly to God. This is one way to achieve the state of egolessness. Another way to become truly egoless is the path of altruism or loving others. Live for others. Feel the pain of others as your own. Feel the sorrow of others as your own. And feel the joy of others as your own. Live with a loving heart. This is another way to become egoless. In short, becoming one with Buddha and becoming one with other people are both teachings of egolessness. They are paths for improving and nurturing your soul. Those who go to the hell realm and the other world after death all have some form of attachment to their ego or their possessions. Some still wander the earth as stray spirits, possessing those on earth, or they might cling to their spouse, children, or house. Some cling to the land they own, others to their grave. There are even those who cling to their desk at the office where they worked when they were alive. They are called earthbound spirits. In Japan, we sometimes hear of government offices where people often committed suicide. For example, suppose a high-ranking government official jumped out the window and died. Then every following year, someone working near his desk commits suicide. In such a case, there is no doubt that the officer became an earthbound spirit. In this way, spirits of hell are bound by attachment. They are all full of attachment, and their attachment comes from I am. 
Unless they deny this ego, they won't be able to get rid of their attachment. Heaven is an altruistic world where all the inhabitants live for the benefit of others. They live for the sake of helping others. This is the state of egolessness. They live not for themselves, but for others. That is how the idea of egolessness should be understood. Finally, we would like to conclude by reading the final section, the conclusion for today's topic. Section 6, Egolessness as the Theory of Salvation. Whether you return to heaven or hell depends on whether you can eliminate your ego. This may sound paradoxical. The ego must be eliminated, but it must be also refined at the same time. Spiritual discipline is something you undertake for your own benefit. It is a way of improving and developing yourself. And in this context, the ego or self may be perceived to be something that is allowed to exist. If your self-discipline is directed toward Buddha, it will lead you to become one with Buddha, and eventually you will approach the state of egolessness. Similarly, if your self-discipline is directed toward the path of altruism with the aim of saving others, you will also be led to the state of egolessness. Devoting yourself to your own study, setting aside time for yourself, and taking care of your own health are necessary as a part of your self-discipline. These attitudes may seem to increase your ego, but as long as you are moving in the direction of Buddha, an altruistic direction, you are approaching the state of egolessness. But if your self-development results in attachment to the things of this world or to the earthly way of life, then you are on the wrong path, a path that will eventually lead you to hell. At the beginning of this chapter, I talked about a famous Buddhist scholar. He conducted extensive research to explain Buddhist theory and even compiled a complete set of teachings. However, in the end, he could not understand the true meaning of Buddhist teachings on egolessness. In the history of Buddhism, such confusion arose as a result of the misinterpretation by Buddha's disciples. So we could say it was inevitable that this scholar could not understand. Sadly, this is the limitation of those who have studied Buddhism from only an intellectual standpoint. Some of you readers may also study the truth in that way, and leave behind similar mistakes for future generations. However, it would be meaningless to merely explain the teachings in an intellectual or abstract way if this does not lead to saving others. Even if some great metaphysical theory were to be expanded, if it does not contribute to people's happiness, it wouldn't mean anything. I want you to really grasp what I have been saying and know the true meaning of the teaching of egolessness. Some may think egoless means there is no self, so killing yourself is no big deal. Even in the times of Shakyamuni Buddha, there were some materialists who said, a human being is a gathering of atoms and molecules. Therefore, even if you slice a human being, it won't be murder. The blade just simply passed through the space between molecules. Although there can be all sorts of theories about spiritual teachings, they should not be used in a way that will lead people astray or prevent them from being saved. More than half the people living on earth now are on the wrong path and are bound for hell. So the laws must be explained in a way that will help save those who have gone astray. If you are stubborn in giving an abstract and metaphysical explanation, you will be able to save neither yourself nor others. Please keep in mind that the purpose of disseminating the teachings is to save people. Wow, Master Okawa has really explained in such clarity. We also recommend you read Chapter 5 of Part 2 of this book, Egolessness from the Perspective of the Middle Way, and Chapter 5 of The Challenge of the Mind, The Benefits of an Egoless Perspective, to deepen your understanding of Buddhist true intention of egolessness. It is our wish that many people will be able to solve the misunderstanding of this commonly misinterpreted Buddhist concept of egolessness. 
That's all for today, and thank you for listening. The Challenge of Enlightenment is available at major bookstores such as Barnes & Noble and Amazon.com. Next month, we'll be back to introduce a new book called Words for Life, which will be released at the end of February or early March on Amazon. It is compiled with 100 words for our daily contemplation and self-reflection. Stay happy, positive, and healthy. 